Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I think there's going to be a realization that standards add value. And if, uh, you know, Orange Button and SunSpec can become more of everyone's conversation, I think that those would be two great things to move our industry forward. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome, welcome. This is episode 131, and I'm really pleased that you've chosen to spend some time with us today. Thank you. Today's entrepreneur journey takes us back to California as we have a look at a young founder with a ton of experience in his field. Anastasios Giones is the founder and CEO of PV Amps. Many refer to him simply as Stas. He has the rare quality of being a visionary leader and a technical get-it-done kind of guy. And today we dig into how this entrepreneur and his team implement proven processes to reduce the risk, cost, and frustration of solar PV projects. Hat tip to listener and friend John Espino for recommending Anastasios for the show. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in over 130 more episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn more. And now get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, once again, thanks to the incredible insightfulness of another Solar Warrior, Mr. John Espino, we have the pleasure and joy of chatting with another solar entrepreneur who is doing amazing things in our industry. Today, we get to hang out with Mr. Anastasios Hyonis. Many of you may know him as Stas. He's penned numerous articles in Solar Builder and other journals. He runs a company called PV Amps out of Sacramento and has a ton of experience building and commissioning solar plants of all sizes. And he has the distinction of being in the very small minority of professional engineers with both a mechanical and electrical engineering degree, or rather engineering accreditation. And we'll, we'll probably go into that as well. But for now, let's say hello and welcome to Anastasios. Morning, Nico. Glad to be here. Anastasios, you've done quite a bit in the solar industry and, and as uh, the solar coaster might have it, uh, you've been on the team of more than one company, as have many of us. Our histories converge with many of our colleagues having both been in some form on the team at Conergy, for example. But as I recall, Sun Techniques was around the time that you started into the solar industry. Could you just help us understand how you first got into the solar power industry, how it occurred to you, if there's something that you longed for, but more importantly, when and where did you decide this is where you wanted to focus your career and really dig in? Yeah, so focusing career really kind of started off in high school. I had, a, had an aptitude for, for science and was really intrigued by a lot of the science projects. And then I went to Cal Poly as a mechanical engineer and really dug into hybrid vehicles and electric vehicles. And so I, I really started on that path kind of in college leading those teams and then got out of college in kind of 2003. And there's, there weren't many, many solar jobs. I knew I wanted to get into renewables, but I really wanted to get into um, understanding how all these projects went together. And so I joined a, a firm called Mazzetti and Associates and did uh, HVAC and plumbing for hospitals and data centers for three and a half years, got my mechanical license, and then um, you know, started looking around and there was a new group in town called Sun Technics, part of uh, Conergy's projects group back in 2007. And so I started off doing residential design and um, did uh, some solar hot water, uh, solar thermal projects for uh, like EOS Winery with that team, started getting into trackers and fabrication, and then uh, eventually went on to become an engineering manager in that team and, and led that group for, for about five or six months. And then the solar coaster happened again, and Conergy closed that group down and spent some time doing a bunch of testing for the marine industry as a, as a spec validation consultant. 
So salt fog chambers, that sort of thing. And then I got a, a tap on the shoulder from Advanced Energy. And so launched into doing utility apps for an inverter company and had a great time really finding, you know, where where I wanted to go and, and meeting all the all the people in the industry. I, I wanted to get back in and, and understand who this client base was because I, I knew I wanted to, to have my own company at some point, but I needed to know who the players were, what the challenges were. And so I really wanted to see kind of the upfront EPC design work, seeing the kind of tech sales and, you know, design and working with great teams and then left there in like the, oh, about May of 2013 and, and joined Swinnerton's awesome group as a pre-construction manager and got to see a bunch of, you know, how a really top firm operates. So I, I enjoyed that. And then 2014, around June, you know, we had to part ways and, you know, decided to open up PV Amps. It wasn't always called PV Amps. It was Hyonis Engineering for, for a, a little bit there. And <laughs> that was too much of a mouthful for people. And so we, we kind of rebranded it, had to figure out what to do and, and, and get going and, and find the right kind of clients to work with that tied on with the, uh, the experience I had. It's kind of a fun coaster going through that process. No doubt. And, and now since 2014, 2015, you've been cranking running your own company. But you mentioned in the lead up that you sort of always knew you wanted to have your own business. Tell me a little bit about your background, your family background, and what informed your sense as a someday business owner. Yeah, as you probably guessed from the name, my family has a Greek background. My, my parents came over after World War II. My dad came and, and started without a, more than a high school education and, and got into the restaurant industry and, and ran that very successfully for a number of years. And there was always a being around a lot of entrepreneurs you know, with family friends and then watching my dad work. And then both of my grandfathers actually were engineers. One of my grandfathers was tool and die for GM for 30-something years. And when he learned that I wanted to get into engineering, he told me, hey, if you're going to do that, you got to learn how all this stuff goes together. And you have to know how to do each of the things that you're, you're telling someone else to do. Because hmm. otherwise, you're going to put a you know, blueprint together or a plan set together. And you know, the guys from the field are going to come and, and mark it all up and make it red and bloody. And um, you know, you're going to look bad. And so you know, if you're going to get into engineering and be serious about it, you should know how things go. And so I, I took that to heart. And now we, we spend a lot of time being engineers in boots to, to know that field side. But back in, you know, getting into entrepreneurship, that was always something that was around the family. Uh, I always saw my dad planning, our family friends planning. And so I knew that I had a real passion for engineering, but I also had a real passion for, for seeing how a business was run uh, and providing that value to the, the people that, um, you know, that make up that team. And so really enjoyed that and saw from an early stage. And then as I started getting into thinking about how to run it myself, I knew that I had a good background and I had good kind of family mentors, but I really got encouraged to get a mentor myself. And so uh, I went and found a, a business coach and, uh, you know, he really helped focus my, my efforts and direction. And so uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of this, this arc of wanting to, to be an entrepreneur, having this background, seeing how it ran on a daily basis, and then you know, applying those lessons and then helping, you know, having someone come in and help me apply those lessons to, uh, to building a team and getting a company off the ground. You know, there's a lot of folks who run, we'll say in quotations, they run an engineering business, right? They're entrepreneurs, but in many ways, they're just solopreneurs. They rely simply on their ability to go from client to client, satisfying this or that need. At what point did you decide to grow the team and how did you make that choice? How did you know that it was time and who's the first hire when you get ready to build uh, out your team? You know, it really came down to what kind of quality of life do I want? How much time do I want to spend with my wife, with my family? I have two twin daughters on the way in January. And so, you know, as you start focusing on like, well, where do, where do I want my family life to be? Then it's like, okay, well, what do I need to do to enable that? And so one of the first things I realized was I can't be working 80 hours a week every week and like see my kids. That's just not going to happen. You know, you have to build leverage at some point. The other thing is, you know, I know I'm not good at everything and there are people who do things way better than I can. And so that's kind of been a, a philosophy of, of my life. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like I can hang drywall and do plumbing, but there are people who do that way better than I do. And so the same was true with, with the business coaches find someone who help me focus my strategy, but then also look at, you know, what's the first thing I need? So in terms of my, you know, four lists, what do I love to do that adds a lot of value? What do I love to do that I can probably delegate? What do I need to do, but I, I 
you know, I'm terrible at that definitely needs to get off my plate. And what do I just not enjoy and I'm not good at? And that's definitely something to get out. And so kind of focusing my, my day to day, I started time tracking uh, in my, in my time tracking tool, everything I did every 15 minutes, what am I doing now? Is this adding value? And so I started seeing what was going on and then figured out, okay, well, I'm spending a lot of time doing manual CAD drafting and some electrical calcs. Like, is that something that I can, I can move off my plate? I'm spending a lot of time doing QuickBooks. I'm spending a lot of time booking my flights and, you know, that sort of stuff, uh, going through business cards. Is that something I can delegate? And so the first hire was actually a virtual assistant, really learning how to delegate to, you know, another professional and setting up, you know, project management tools like Asana uh, to really look at how we do our process. And then once I got her up and going, the next thing was I need to have another engineer. And so I went to the local college where we're in Sacramento. I found a Sac State mechanical engineer was able to to find someone who had a good engineering background, who had a good head on their shoulders and was willing to learn. Uh, even though they were mechanical, just like I was, a lot of solar systems integration. And so they knew how to use CAD. They were able to learn the electrical calcs. So the first hire was really getting design taught to someone else. I had managed a team at, at Conergy and I knew how to do some training and I knew what I needed done. So that was my first real employee and it was also the time to get an office. I'd been working out of my home for, for 15 years, being able to bring someone on really kind of forced, hey, you know, you can't have someone show up and like work out of a home office uh, yeah. eight hours a day. Like that's not going to work on a family level. And so at this point, it's about a year and a half into high onus engineering slash PVMs. Is that right? Yes, that's the right time. So we're about a, a year in. I've been solopreneuring it for, for about a year and a half. Was it revenue driven? Was it, the, did you see that you couldn't achieve more revenue because you were limited by time or, or tasks? What was it that I mean, really triggered it for you? It was the amount of time I was spending doing a lot of those tasks, but it was also the quality of the work and the commitments to our clients. You know, there was more and more demand for for our offerings and I didn't have enough hours in the week to, to do a quality job for my clients. And so at that point, that was a real decision of, Hey, I'm already at this level. You know, can we do things better if I you know, had this many hours off my plate? And so that's, that's what I looked at from a, uh-huh. do I have enough to support having someone else come on? Oh yes. in spades was my, my wife's answer. Right. Um, it was fun at the beginning, the first month and a half kind of getting someone else up to speed. But you know, I went from 80 hours to like 50 and I was like, Oh, 50 hours. Wow. Like I can like, you know, make dinner and like maybe watch TV like once a week. So (laughs) no, no, I mean like, you know, when you're working all the time and you're running your own business, you're like, you know, like you're, you're on it all the time and being able to, to take a breather was, was actually very good from a, from a health standpoint, but also from a focus on kids like, okay, now we have these extra hours. How do we use some of them to make life even better for, for not only the, the people working with us, but our clients, you know, what can we do to do our process improvement or our product improvement with this time? Can we make tools that we'd use for calculations or, you know, CAD details to make mm-hmm. our drawings better? So that kind of helps free up time to focus on the business, not focus on just getting work done. Yeah, as they say, you can now work on the business instead of in the business. One of the things that I note from your career path that's somewhat similar to mine, although you're in engineering and I'm sales and marketing, is you went from a regional player to a major international manufacturing entity, which is kind of at a higher level, you get a 10,000 foot view of of what the entire macro of the industry is and how how the levers are pulled. And then you drill back down to the very execution level at Swinerton before going out on your own and creating your firm. I'd love to hear from you because I'm sure that you've thought about it. What are the lessons learned from your time migrating through AE and Swinerton that informs how you approach project execution and why that matters to your clients. You mentioned something earlier there. It, it was absolutely a planned arc. Um, I know that I wanted to learn the industry. I had seen a small EPC and I really wanted to see the top players and I wanted to you know, be you know, with a manufacturing firm that could have access to, to those clientele so I can see how these different teams, you know, who they are, where they're located and how they run their companies. And so that was absolutely a, a planned arc. I knew I needed to, to get into large, you know, manufacturer to see that footprint and then, you know, find a team that, that ultimately I could learn the next stage from, which happened to be Swinerton. So that was, that was very much a planned arc. So one of the things looking at both those companies, AE and, and Swinerton, one of the things that, that we really wanted to learn was how all these projects went together, where the gaps were, 
what kind of challenges are, are people facing and how do they solve them? And what I learned being on the applications engineering side of, of AE was a tremendous respect for the field and the lessons that came out of it, talking with service technicians, talking with uh, site supervisors, electricians, wiremen, you know, how do you get things done? How much space do you need to install that? How does this bolt together? My background's mechanical engineering, and so I've, I have a good product focus, and I've spent a lot of time actually doing fabrication, welding, machining, and, and packaging. And so I wanted to learn what's going on in the field, and then how do those, those things move forward? But then also, how do you run a good team? How do you have you know, good presentation of, of your materials? How do you structure your workflow? What kind of you know, intake forms do you need? What kind of safety stuff do you need? How do you solve right. these problems? Uh, and so I wanted to see the whole arc from, from project planning to, to design, to installation, to commissioning, to operation. And between AE and Swinerton, I got to see those perspectives. And I got to see some of the challenges I faced on a daily basis going through and helping get projects launched. And so that actually spawned our philosophy of, of engineers and boots. You know, we're designers, but we also need to know the field side because that's the key to a lot of success. How is it communicated? How is it planned? How do you go from a set of blueprints to an actual completed project? And one of the things we learned was... There's often a lot of handoffs that happen, and there's a lot of early stage work that needs to get negotiated at the very beginning. And if that work is not done well, and it's not handed off, and it's not stewarded through, you get a lot of gaps in how a project is executed. And it's as simple as someone not knowing that they need to fill out a form, or which combiner boxes land on which bus bar at the inverter. Uh, Little details like that really help in commissioning. If it's not something that someone's aware of, then they miss it, and then that adds you know, scheduled delay and cost. And so, you know, that's the philosophy on, on engineers and boots. And we touched upon this in our solar pro article, getting projects to be successful really starts at the beginning. It really starts at contracts and making sure everything is really transparent, uh, that teams are collaborative, um, you know, between owners and engineers and EPCs so that everyone has the right expectations at the beginning. And then that those expectations are carried through out of project from pre-construction into project management to the site supers. So the real key is as you're looking at planning a project to make it successful at the end, you need the beginning to be set up correctly and have a good foundation, but you also need to be transparent and collaborative. Here's the expectations on it. Here's the standards we're working with. Here's the values we're going to put into our, you know, PVSYS model. You know, here's the actual equipment that's going to be used and then allow for, you know, the actual stuff that shows up. And so, we're specking this transformer, but that, you know, what actually shows up on site is going to have a different, slightly different test value. And so the ability to work those into models, uh, the ability to record data throughout a project to facilitate, you know, the end documentation. And so, as we mentioned in our solar pro article, that really carries through from, from planning at the beginning all the way through those handoffs. And so having a team or a dedicated group that stewards that process all the way through really cuts down on, on schedule, really makes the project a lot more efficient. Uh, and then at the end of the end of the day, when you're trying to get things done and people are normally scrambling, if you have the right planning and the right communication with the teams and all the stakeholders involved, then, then going through commissioning, performance testing, and, and all the way to COD certification becomes a, a task list of, of you know, that, that goes really smooth. If that is not planned ahead of time, there is uh, a lot of churn that happens on projects, and that's not a good spot to be in. And so that's our, our main message is, you know, if, if you can find a team to work with that understands that engineering side, that understands that field side, that understands that, that data acquisition side, and the performance test standards, to have a team that does that, uh, we call it engineers in boots because you need to know the whole process front to back. That's a real key piece that's missing, uh, and that can really smooth out a lot of the jobs. Is get them planned, get them executed and then get them validated and get them set up for operations. So that's kind of the next piece there is, is as plants move into operations, a lot of people work with systems that are not fully vetted or validated, and they're making decisions off of that, those data streams from asset managers to, to O&M teams. How do they decide what to do? And if they're, if they're getting information that is not accurate and is not validated, then they could be making multi-million dollar mistakes or their planning or their budgeting could be off. And so that's the other kind of key feature there is, you know, how do you set up projects not only for COD, 
how do you set them up for long-term success, long-term operations? Mm-hmm. And that's really setting that base model uh, so that the expectations are clear at the end of the project, that the site is validated and informed, you know, and really documented so that the, you know, bids for operations can be really informed and that there's, there's you know, really clear understanding of, of what the current condition is. And then once you have that baseline, then you can see, well, how is it performing? Does it need to be improved? And so that's, that's setting the project up at the very contract tech dev level to have a really successful operations. And you need to kind of follow all those steps to make that happen. It's a really complex topic. And I think probably if we, if we have an opportunity in another time, we'll probably just drill down specifically to the article. Anastasia just mentioned an article in Solar Pro. I apologize that earlier I may have said Solar Builder, but it's Solar Professional. If you can, you can find the article on our blog or also on solarprofessional.com. It's a super comprehensive uh, article around achieving COD where Anastasia and his team break down exactly how to take a project to completion. And I mean uh, exactly from critical nego- negotiations up front, test modeling, uh, module output, to performance testing, pre-commissioning, startup, et cetera. Uh, it's a really comprehensive article. And, and it's one of the things that when uh, originally shared with me, certainly convinced me, having really never met uh, Stas uh, much in person, that these guys have uh, a wealth of knowledge and experience to share. And it's, it's so true that as an independent authority, as an owner's engineer, there's so many developers out there, so many of you solar warriors who are listening that if you, from the very beginning, bring someone like PV Amps on board as a part of your team, not only do you, as the, as the age old saying says, start with the end in mind, but you're assured and you have this sense of confidence. Not only that, your banks have a sense of confidence that it's correct, that you have your contract set up properly and your agreements are actually surrounding the things that you're going to do uh, and that you have the process in place to, to execute on the things your agreements say you're going to do. And then as, as Anastasio has put it, your PM team, when you get into the execution phase, knows where all the documents and paperwork are. And when it comes to the end of the project, you don't have a cluster of problems to, to tie up. You can just tie up the loose ends. As Anastasia said, the more time you spend up front, the more time you save at the end of the project. And that philosophy, I appreciate you kind of uh, unpacking it for us. Anastasia, so I want to move into a segment I call hot or hype. It's a uh, a brief uh, parlay into uh, kind of market and uh, topic ideas. So I'll mention uh, a specific topic and you'll take me 30 or 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or hype and why. We'll start an area where I imagine you get a lot of not only expertise and and, uh, get to flex your muscle, but also get to think about the future for our industry. Uh, Hot or hype, microgrids for the future of our energy growth. I think they're hot. There's definitely a lot of conversations around resiliency uh, and around individual buildings or communities being able to to ride through storms, especially with a lot of the the natural weather events we've been having in the last couple of years. You know, how do you how do you have a system that that not only works with the local grid at a high level, but also has a high degree of resiliency to it? That's I think a growing topic, and this whole conversation with battery energy storage. Uh, systems and solar and you know real resiliency in buildings I think is going to be one that's going to continue to grow as our infrastructure uh, throughout the country and throughout the world needs to be addressed. People are going to look at what can they do for themselves, not only from a, just a resiliency standpoint, but from a good business standpoint, uh, from an operational standpoint. Does it make good business sense to have secured and, and resilient operational infrastructure? Vehicle to grid, so the nexus of vehicles and distributed energy and e-mobility, hot or hype? I think some of that is hype. Uh, It certainly gets a lot of press. Uh, The real question becomes, you know, how does everyone get along and communicate? How does resources get managed? Who has the ultimate decision? Having a lot of batteries and vehicles, they have a different discharge characteristic than stationary batteries. And so then the question is also, at what point does a consumer get to benefit from it? What is the market mechanism? Uh, who's controlling that market mechanism? And ultimately, can the person drive home at the end of the day? It sounds like where you say it's hype is that it's lacking infrastructure. Is that, is that the sort of the core argument for why you think it might be hype? 
I think it could be hype because of the level of coordination and privacy questions, mm -hmm. uh, but then also the ability for, is that the right kind of technology? Is that the right kind of mm -hmm. um, energy storage system for that application? Right. Uh, and so, and then what is the, what is the increase to, um, to the infrastructure needed to implement? And so mm -hmm. I think the, the hype part right now is, is not necessarily, oh, could we use mobile batteries to buffer but is that a a longer term solution, and, and what is the what is the management mechanism, and what is the market mechanism to enable it? Moving on to our third and final topic for hotter hype: blockchain as it relates to energy. Having not only a transparent but a distributed ledger is is an interesting thought, uh, especially around project ownership and around project data. The real question is, you know, how is a distributed ledger used and in what context? Is it good for projects? Uh, is it good for visibility? You know, what are the standards being used for it? And so, you know, when a project is owned by someone who's controlling that data, is there the ability to audit that data? Can anything be hidden if, if one owner has control? But if it's distributed, well, now who has access to it? How is that information stored? Are there financial security questions around who is storing that data for different entities. So I'd say blockchain is is hot, but the, the kinks of implementation need to be worked out and the legal you know stuff needs to be looked at in terms of how are we handling data, how is it redundant, who owns it, and then what is the exposure from a security standpoint. I love it. A very cogent argument as expected from an engineer and I particularly love that you looked at the distributed ledger aspect of blockchain rather than jumping to cryptocurrency as uh, sometimes folks are uh, are want to do. You know, in a conversation that you and I had, you talked about the stages of entrepreneurship, organic growth, and the need to facilitate consistency within an organization to be able to scale. <laughs> as you mentioned before, hiring gives you a chance to see your family, right? This is stuff that most entrepreneurs struggle with. I think that there are things that are common to the solar industry in particular and renewables, clean tech, perhaps, with regard to systems and processes. And I'd love to know from your perspective what you've begun to implement at your company and what holes, what gaps do you see solar entrepreneurs in particular needing to address in their business as they try to scale? Uh, I think the number one thing that, that we needed to address from the, from the beginning and we still work with today is communication of, of deliverables and, and deadlines. Uh, no, as our team continues to grow, how do we properly project manage? Uh, how do we document what needs to be done? How do we have the right intake forms? How do we communicate those, those deadlines and expectations to the team that's carrying out mm -hmm. that, that project? When are we invoicing? What stage is a project at? You know, did we hit our 60% milestone? Do we archive this job now? Uh, right. this, is this job complete? So, you know, all of that for me centers around communication and being transparent with it. It's, it's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of our project process and workflows are very well defined and, you know, executing certain aspects is, you know, one of the things we, we're strong at, but even on an internal level, we're always trying to find a way of making it better. And so, you know, we've, we've actually gone through the point of, of having a, um, a workflow specialist come in and look at our as-built condition and, and help us document, you know, what are we currently doing? How do we make that better? Uh, so always this, this philosophy of continual improvement uh, so that our team is happy. They know what they need to do and they know when things are going on uh, so that they can look ahead and see, you know, how are they managing the, the deliverables they have on their plate? And then from the management side, you know, how are we resource planning correctly? And so all of that for me revolves around, you know, communications of, of expectations. As we continue to grow and scale, that is always forefront in my mind uh, as a problem that we're, we're constantly working towards. Hey, simple question. When was the last time you were truly delighted at a customer support interaction? My friends at Helioscope do their best to delight their customers every single day. And that's why dozens of solar developers have claimed Helioscope has the best customer support they've ever seen. Not just in the solar industry, but in all their interactions. See for yourself. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you. 
Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. Does your current asset management software provider call just to check in? If you're already using PowerHub, well, I know your answer is yes. See, when you're using PowerHub's asset management software, your customer success specialist is your guide and advocate. PowerHub's not just a software provider, they're a partner for your growth. And their seasoned customer success team is known throughout the industry for helping developers spot and address core business inefficiencies. They have the largest customer success team in the industry for a reason, so that your business grows, not just bigger, but better, with PowerHub in your corner. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. So as we begin to to segue a bit back to some of the the lessons learned and the way that you've begun to grow as an entrepreneur, I wanted to get to the point that you and I talked about around transparency and collaboration. I know that from your perspective, it's not the norm. <laughs> it's not something that we foster in this industry, unfortunately. But I'd love to hear from your perspective how what it means for you and PV Amps to have transparency and collaboration, and how do you integrate that philosophy into your operations? Yeah, so we look at transparency and collaboration as as really the keys of, of actually having a good conversation, and, the, and it goes into expectations. Uh, we have often been called out to a site where performance testing may have started on a project, but all of the, you know, a lot of fuses were offline, a lot of the sensors were not properly oriented or aligned, and then there were, there were issues with systems. And having kind of gates in terms of what's going on with the project and what the expectations are, you know, would have helped catch some of those issues at the beginning. Uh, but then also looking at how are we working with all of our stakeholders on a project? How are we looking at the expectations those stakeholders have? And a lot of that has to do with, well, what do we expect this solar system to produce? Uh, you know, what's the production that we're looking for uh, as we look at a performance test in particular? And so, you know, the experience has often been, you know, either either a developer may have a different model for their, for their finance team or they're trying to use that same model for a performance test, and those should be really segregated so that, you know, you're, you're actually testing the as-built condition of the, of the system with the right contract requirements. And part of this discussion is, here's what the plans say, here's what's going on with the equipment, here's the best weather we know, are people agreeing that, yes, that is the weather file? Yes, you know, these, this is the amount of voltage drop we're putting on a project so that we can actually come up with a performance test criteria, you know, a base model uh, that then we can look at the as-built conditions and the, and the current existing weather and, and look at that. And, you know, so this is a little bit in the weeds, but sometimes people will, will take their models and hold it close to their vest and not share, and then you're, you're guessing at what the mm-hmm. other side is thinking. That's not conductive for anyone. Uh, it's, it's, we found it a lot better from a conversation standpoint to say, hey, here's, you know, to the best of our ability, what we think is actually going on with the system. Here's what's in the contract. Here's the specific articles um, of, you know, exhibit, whatever. And, you know, we've built this test model to reflect these, this contract requirements, but also, you know, the existing system. And so, does this look right to you? Are we testing the right variables? Are we having the right exclusion boundaries as we look at this model? And that really opens up a lot of collaboration. So not only are we being transparent with, here's how we're, how we're planning on doing this, here's the inputs we're putting into this model, uh, but it also gets multiple people checking on that. And so once you lay all the cards on the table, you know, this isn't proprietary, it's a you know, standard test. How do we go through this and say, you know, this is what we have. And then you get the, the team saying, okay, well, we, we found an error in this formula or yes, that looks great or we can agree on this value. And so this is a, a long diatribe, but to, to kind of sum it up, the transparency and collaboration are key to make sure that everyone's on the same page with the same expectations and that models aren't being hidden and that people aren't pointing fingers at each other. They're, they're collaborating to, to identify what may be off of the model or to mm-hmm. set up the model that way everyone has agreement and consensus so that when the model gets run, all of the expectations are the same across all the stakeholders. And a lot of what we do is, is document those things. And so as we put together, you know, say a performance test, we have a, you know, a test plan that has all those gates to make sure that, you know, the field is checked and the fuses are online before the testing starts. But then also, you know, here's all the variables that we're going to put into this model 
here's the dates, you know, here's the information so that all of it's clear and that everyone signs off and agrees to it. And that really kind of commits the, the stakeholder group to that plan and to, to stay with that plan and to not come back later and say, oh, well, I think we should have done something a different way. It's like, well, when we had that conversation, you know, you agreed and here's your signature on, on our document that says we're going to do it this way. And so we're going to continue moving forward with that plan. You know, let's, let's look at what the value is of, of, of your objection now and, and let's rediscuss that if needed. You know, but here's, here's the current plan. How do, we, how do we keep moving forward and keep everything on schedule versus the more contentious argument of not sharing a model, not being mm-hmm. open with the expectations, and then that conversation can't go anywhere. How do you think about, as the leader of your organization, failure? And how do you think about encouraging your team to move fast and break things, kind of like uh, Reed Hoffman says, and, but, but also, and to be transparent and to show where you are tracking the issues with the process? And how do you set systems up in, in place to encourage that and to foster that level of transparency within the organization and give your customers the confidence that something good is coming out of that? The whole concept of transparency is, is pretty core to engineering, but it's, it's also core to our industry's success. I mean, we call it engineering financial viability. And having transparency really brings home the fact that we're going to get audited, not in a bad way, but like we are ultimately, you know, beholding to the financial industry, which, which, ha- you know, makes this whole solar roller coaster work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there has to be transparency there. There has to be honesty. And ultimately there has to be no ego because we're all as stakeholders in this game, trying to make this industry better and part of that is that transparency. And so, yeah, we have to look at, you know, how are we trying things? How are we documenting those things? Um, like you said, how do you, how do you break things and try stuff out? Ultimately, the answer is it's okay to make mistakes as long as you're honest about them. If you have it out there, you know, that's, that's part of that collaboration approach. Hey, you know, we're not going to get every cell on a spreadsheet right all the time. It's just never going to happen. Yeah. Um, but inviting someone to say, Hey, I'm open to having you look at that and, and help, you know, this project become better. If you, if you have an insight, Oh, great. Yes. Oh, that's, that's clearly, that's clearly ours. Thank you for catching that. So let's move forward with this project. One of the things that I learned early on, and this is a great segue into the next question. Uh, I learned from one of my favorite bosses. I don't know if I could pick a favorite, but John Pickering, uh, when I was at Lumetta, he came to me one day, I'll never forget. He said, Nico, I want to hear good news fast. I want to hear bad news faster. And for me, that was a, that was a fundamental lesson early in my career on uh, the value of communication, the importance of surfacing problems quickly, not so that you'd be exposed, but so that others with perhaps greater experience could uh, lend you a hand, could help you dig out of the hole, or so that at the very least management sees when a a train's getting off the tracks. I mean, uh, folks that are operating in the agile format of, um, of project development certainly understand how that framework helps you to keep transparency in organization, but many sales organizations <laughs> lack this level of uh, transparency and even honestly with themselves. So with that in mind, I'd love to hear, uh, that was one of my key lessons and takeaways early in my career. I'd love to hear what are some key lessons or takeaways for you from some of the early and important mentors in your career? On the mentorship side, you actually brought up a key point there is, is how do you stay agile and fast? And, and one of the things we look at is, you know, here's the project, you know, explain something and then like, go look at it, take half an hour and come up with any questions you have and then come back, figure out what you don't know. And then, you know, that'll start, you know, start getting you to, to identify those things. And then, you know, every day, if you keep asking the question, eventually you can get through a whole process and, and understand the whole thing and internalize it. And so, you know, go as fast as you can and then, you know, stop, put those questions together. And so going back. And so from a mentorship standpoint, one of the kind of fun good mentors I, I've had is actually Zach Ward. He's, he's had many positions, but uh, we, we started off together at Advanced Energy. You know, everything from just, you know, how do you present yourself? How do you talk to certain kinds of clients? But ultimately, where are you trying to get to? Who is that person? You know, how do you know, who do you know someone in that partner network? Um, you know, if you're, you have an end goal in mind, how do you reverse engineer that plan? So, you know, say you're looking for, for a particular client, who do they know? Who are their subs? You know, who are they connected with? If you're trying to accomplish a goal of making something happen, you know, reverse engineer that process. 
and that really got me thinking about everything. Uh, you know, what's my next year's plan going to be? You know, as I put my kind of sales plan together and, uh, for the year, my company plan is where do I want to be at the end of next year? You know, what projects do I need to do to accomplish that? What team do I need in place to do that? What is their workloading? What is their, you know, hourly rate? Can we make a process better so that we can do more of the thing that, that is the most important to us? And so, you know, that, that was kind of one of the key lessons I learned from, from Zach was figure out where you want to go and then reverse engineer how to get there. And that really helped from, a, from an early standpoint of focusing almost everything I did. That's been one of my big takeaways. So thank, thanks, Zach. <laughs> I love it. And Zach, uh, Zach was just one of the guys that was at AE the whole time, right? He just he saw the rise of that company and, and mentored a lot of you guys coming up through the ranks. So uh, the sage advice from Zach Ward. Similarly, any advice for, from you, uh, Anastasius? You've been uh, on this journey for more than a half decade now. What advice might you have for fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life? Uh, I'd say go for it. Um, there's lots of people out there that can help you out. Don't be afraid to, to ask questions. Be humble. Uh, know that you don't know everything. And really, I'd say before you do anything else, talk to the significant other in your life and make sure that they're on board. Mm -hmm. uh, because having that kind of support was key for me. Um, I would not have uh, the company I have if, if my wife, Stephanie, did not support me from day one. You know, there was, there was six months where I was making no money and, you know, barely breaking even and she carried us through. I agree with you as an entrepreneur. It's totally a great, uh, uh, it's, it's essential that you get your personal support network on board, but let's face it as an entrepreneur, there are just those things that you can't talk to your wife about. You can't talk to your, to your best friend in town about you've been ex involved as I have in mastermind groups. Can you tell us your experience with mastermind groups, how you got, how you got exposed to them and how they've helped you develop as an, as an entrepreneur and individual? Yeah, I'd say mastermind groups, besides, besides having a good coach, are, are very key because, like you said, there are conversations you, you just can't have with your wife or, uh, or, or you know, spouse and or with your, like your, your other friends. Yeah, yeah. There, so there's conversations you can't have with other people who are not entrepreneurs. And being able to sit in a, in a formal, you know, kind of safe zone of like, hi, I'm going to lay my worst fears and anxieties on the table and see if, if anyone else has a good idea on how to solve it or, uh, or you know, to help each other out and have that space to do that has been pretty key because, uh, you know, there are things that, that we struggle through from, you know, hey, what proposal software are you guys using to, hey, I'm having this payroll issue or, you know, there's an employee issue or something. You know, there's, there's topics that you can't just have in normal conversation. Mm -hmm. And sitting down and, and meeting with others who are, you know, in the thick of it, just like you who have, you know, maybe are in different industries, uh, but are maybe different uh, stages of their growth. Uh, but to have that conversation is, is great because it's, you, you get ideas you wouldn't think about. And there are always people in the group who are at uh, a higher level or a lower level than you are in that experience. And so, you know, sometimes you're the teacher other times you're like, man, that's a great idea. I didn't even think about that angle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and you know, implement that right now. So mastermind groups are, are key to have not only a space to discuss business, to discuss the challenges of, of, of growth, but they're also great places to learn from. And so I, I would highly encourage everyone to, you know, besides having a good coach to work with, having a good group to work with that you can bounce those ideas off of, um, you know, and make sure that there's someone who's at a higher level than, than you. If, if you want to get to, you know, X dollars, make sure there's someone who's doing 2X that because they've gone through your challenges. Um, mm. You know, we're, we're all growing as entrepreneurs and we all need to learn from each other. And masterminds are a great way to do that. Well, Stas, as we round third base here, we go into a segment I often call learning leadership and legacy. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And I uh, would bet that you as well are uh, a fan of books. So I'd love to hear two things around reading. The first is, is there a book that you have given away or recommended the most and why? Gary Vaynerchuk's crushing it. Get the audiobook. Don't, don't get the you know, paperback. It's a real philosophy of, of following what you're passionate about and being full of knowledge and value. And then, you know, having that lead to your, 
your clients because you're, you're always providing value to them. Uh, and if you're not passionate about something, you're not going to follow through with it. And so that was a pretty key book uh, for me. So the other book I'd recommend is, uh, is The Lean Startup, you know, is that exact philosophy of, of figure out what your customers like, uh, try a few things out, um, especially as you're, you're early on, really listen to your clients and, and try a few things and see if they like them. And this goes for, for your formatting, your presentations, your work product, um, you know, try it, break it, fix it, do it again. And, and most importantly, kind of keep track of what's going on uh, so that you can keep making things better. Yeah, those are two fantastic books, and I would recommend if uh, if folks are going down the rabbit hole of Gary V, the book uh, that he wrote after crushing it, Jab 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 Right Hook, is um, if nothing else, it's a formula for social media. I think so many of our folks out there are wondering how guys like myself and Scott Sullivan can manage to be prolific in social media and be uh, sort of uh, be- becoming uh, ubiquitous and ever present. And it's, I can promise you, I know Scott's for, as well, it's following that same formula. Give for, to others and support others three times more than you promote yourself. So that's the thesis of Jab, 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 Right Hook, but I would suggest that you go and read it anyway. There's nobody in, in um, media right now covering how to be, how to create your own brand and how to be in social media and leverage it as a business tool than, than Gary Vee. They're just the leaders by far. The second question I have, Anastasius, for you around uh, reading is, as you reflect on the books that you have read that have made an impact on you, is there any book that you feel like philosophical or otherwise would have been uh, a, a huge value for you and, and given you an accelerator uh, recently out of college? So if you could go back and gift yourself as a college grad uh, one book, what, would that, what book would that be? If I had to do one book, I'd say The Toyota Way, Never Settle With What You Have find ways of improving and list others to help you improve. Uh, it was the kind of key takeaways I had from that one. Anastasius, what habit or consistent practice has the greatest impact on your life or work? The thing that has the most impact, especially on a daily basis, is you know what three things do I need to accomplish every day? And okay. a lot of them is looking at you know, what's the most important and then don't do anything until you have that number one thing taken care of. I need to write a proposal today. Nothing happens until that proposal is out the door. Mm. Hey, we're not hitting our monthly number. Um, you know, we're short X. Who do I know that I could call to see if there's, if there's a service that they have? Um, if, if someone's looking for something, how do I stay on track? And so I usually look at those kinds of things first is, you know, what's the one thing that needs to happen to keep me on track as a, as a company today? And then nothing happens until that's done. And my, my team knows that. Uh, I have it blocked off on my calendar. And so I usually walk in, check in on a few things, but then I'll go close my door for an hour and like make that one thing happen. And then the rest of the day goes, goes from there. And so that's what I would encourage is, uh, you know, what's your most important three things and then don't do anything until your first one is done take a quick little break, make sure the second one's done, take another little break, make the third one done. And if you just work on that focus every day is paramount, you know, things can slip, things can get delegated, but that really focuses your attention on how do I make this actually happen? Fantastic advice. uh, And building that habit is probably one of the most oft-cited uh, and core skills of successful entrepreneurs is, uh, as Mark Twain said, eat, eat the frog. Got to get that top priority done as early in the day as possible. Anastasios, how can people find you? I know that you are on LinkedIn. I'll link to it there. Uh, are you on Twitter? How, how would you prefer folks reach out? Email is probably the best one, uh, stas at pvamps.com. You can find us at pvamps.com. I do not have a Twitter handle, and I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look me up there. Fantastic. I'm and terrible at voicemail. Leave me a text. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No. Did you know, you have you ever, have, no, no, we won't take that out at all. Because anybody who has ever called my uh, phone, anybody who's ever called my phone knows that that's something you and I share. <laughs> have you ever listened to my voicemail stuff? I probably have, and I can't remember it, but something Wait. along the lines of, for a faster response, please text me. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. I haven't and quite gone the full Aaron Adams. It's like, no, I don't have a voicemail, but like I listen to voicemail once every two days just because I can't keep up with it. And like, I'll get texts like, hey, your voicemail is full. It's like, yes, it's 10 a.m. I've gotten 15 calls this morning. Thank you. I haven't got to him because I've been on a <laughs> phone call for two hours. I'm aware. I'm aware. I love it. You know, so, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, it just happened. 
for those of you who are still hanging around, I love you. Uh, thanks for listening this far in. You clearly want to hear what Stas uh, has to say about the crystal ball, but I, I hope that this life tip helps you as well. I do get a lot of, of division and derision around what folks say about my voicemail uh, because some say, hey, what a douchebag. Like, I'm going to leave you a voicemail anyway. And others say, quote, that's the best voicemail I've ever heard. And, uh, and they'll leave me a voicemail just saying, hey, one day I want you to hear my voice here. <laughs> I'll go ahead and text you anyway. <laughs> so uh, I get some of the craziest voicemails awesome. now. Yeah, I get some funny voicemails now, though. It's hilarious. Anastasios, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Crystal ball is, I think there's going to be a realization that standards add value. And if, uh, you know, Orange Button and SunSpec can become more of everyone's conversation, uh, I think that those would be two great things to move our industry forward. I love it. Uh, Tom Tansy would certainly agree with you, frequent uh, uh, listener and, and past guest of the show. And uh, I love it as, as standards are recognized as adding value, I expect that SunSpec will in fact become one of the the pillars and cornerstones of how people do business in our industry i hope that that is uh indeed true stas i appreciate you sir thank you so much wow i continue to be humbled and amazed at the quality of entrepreneurs and leaders we have in this industry solar warriors if you'd like to learn more about anastasios and read some of the articles that he's published on optimizing your entire project planning process from a to z Be sure to head over to the blog at mysuncast.com for show notes, links, book recommendations, and more. Hey, while you're at the website, I'd love to encourage you as well to sign up for the newsletter where I share my thoughts on each episode and let you know when I think there's something else interesting that you should be paying attention to. Like the next episodes of Suncast, of course, but also where I'll be in the world and how we can meet up. New ways for you to learn and stay ahead of the pack. You can also check out our Suncast tribe, my inner circle of listeners and advisors, by clicking on the member button. Well, next up on Suncast. I think this whole transition to electric vehicles and solar energy represent a potential shift in a significant part of our industry to go more DC. If you listened to episode 125 with Bill Nussie, you heard me mention his partner, Ben Damiani. Next week, you can learn all about how Ben and Bill are disrupting the industry with reconfigurable solar cells. In the meantime, I look forward to interacting with you via Twitter, LinkedIn, and inside the Suncast Tribe Slack and WhatsApp channels. Power on, Solar Warriors. If you're not already a Suncast member, I look forward to someday welcoming you into the tribe, my friend. Thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.